Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and prancing, chattering mortal flesh, Elisa Quitney. And I'm story expert and giggling, dangerous, totally bloody, psychotic menace to life and limb, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about A Midsummer Night's Dream, issue 19 from the Sandman comic book series. A Midsummer Night's Dream was written by Neil Gaiman, with additional material taken from the play by William Shakespeare. It was illustrated by Charles Vess and colored by Steve Olaf, lettered by Todd Klein, and edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Tom Pyre, cover by Dave McKean. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, William Shakespeare pays his debt to Morpheus by staging a performance of his new play for some very special guests. Things need not to have happened to be true. Tales and dreams are the shadow truths that will endure when mere facts are dust and ashes and forgot time to wake up. All right, Elisa. So here we are with The Midsummer Night's Dream, the third of the collection of four short stories that make up volume three, Dream Country. And uh, what did you think? I I think this is a, a delicious confection with, you know, a balance of darkness and humor, tart comedy of manners, and the bittersweet tang of parental neglect. <laughs> I, uh, as in Calliope, it also reflects uh, on the business of writing and the price of turning your all, all your intimates into uh, story material. Nora Ephron once famously uh, said that her parents believed everything is copy. And right. I think there's there's a strong vein of that that runs through the Sandman. But you know, the tone of this is pure magic and Charles's, uh, Charles Vess's artwork is just amazing fairy tale. For me, it's perfect. And how about for you? Oh, my God. I loved this so much. This was so fun. We've got the return of William Shakespeare, um, themes of be careful what you wish for, which is one of my favorite kind of themes to talk about in literature. Um, fairies who just want to enjoy the play. We've got a stray hobgoblin trickster staying behind to cause mayhem, which I absolutely loved. Um, a magical portal in the side of a hill, which I freaking adored. Um, I think this issue was specifically made to delight me. It is just all of these things that I, I loved every minute of it. It was so, so fun. But let's go ahead and start where we always start talking a little bit about uh, about the Dave McKean cover. What did you think of that? Well, I love this cover. It's, you know, I, I think initially I'm, I'm trying to think of how to describe it. We've got this face yeah. that looks um, as as you mentioned, it could be a mask or it could be a face mm -hmm. that's like a, a, a tree face that's made of wood, mm -hmm. and it uh, and it peeks out behind what at first looks sort of like a lacy curtain, but uh -huh. you know you look closer and you see that it's a golden swath of something or swatch of something that resembles like a honeycomb of tiny little pyramids, and yeah. and then you've got these fairy figures which are really. There's something a little demonic or or nature spirit mm -hmm. about them. They they look both mischievous and a little demonic to me. And 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 partially they also look like they could be aliens from a, a different realm. 
Yeah, um, they are really interesting the way they look. They reminded me a bit of the demons from Hell, from the uh, the first volume from Preludes and Nocturnes when we went to Hell. They sort of had that similar kind of a very weird feel, but they are very sprightly. And it's this fairy, like, you know, we have Disneyfied fairies culturally in America in the last century or so, um, but fairies have been very toothy creatures for a really long time. Like, um, so it was, I felt that sharpness mm, in them, yes. um, which was really, really fun, but there's a lot of variety too, um, in the, uh, in the, in the fae. So I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah, the pattern of embossed triangles. I was like, well, what is, what is that? What does that mean? What is this? You know, um, everything looks a little bit like it's in parchment. You know, the fairies look like mm. they're written or they're drawn on parchment and cut from parchment there is that sense then there's that dark face and it just occurred to me now that do you think that face might be wendell guarding the portal between the two worlds oh god i love that what a yes i i i love it and i also love um you know wendell i think neil came up with the name because wendell's Mound Town, I think, was the origin. Some people think of Wilmington, which is where that uh-huh. long man is is situated. But I love that Wendell sounds. I don't know. It's it was the prince in that series, Tenth Kingdom. So I was thinking of it. Wendell, Wendell's a dog. Wendell. You know, it's. it's <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, it'll be fun. We're going to definitely talk about all of that because that's one of my favorite parts of the whole thing, and much, much more detail when we talk about the uh, the man in the hill. But we have a couple of new artists here um, this week who are coming in as um, now. I think that because we had Charles vests right and we didn't distinguish between anchor and illustrator um so i'm guessing that he did both he did both it took him Mm -hmm. uh two and a half months and Uh and we have steve olaf who is doing the colors on this issue yeah so that's that's neat we've got some new people coming to work on this um yeah so neil had said i i have to admit to to jar my memory i i ended up going mm -hmm. back into hyde bender's sandman companion and the annotated sandman with leslie Klinger to to sort of look back over Mm -hmm. things um because i realized 30 years is a long time it is a long time Anyway, so I, I don't know if I had known this before. I knew that, um, I mean, so Neil had been at a San Diego Comic-Con, I think in 89, and he mm-hmm. had uh, seen Charles Vest's work. Charles had already been drawing fairies. I think he'd illustrated a, a version of Midsummer Night's Dream. And so mm-hmm. Neil knew that he would be perfect for this. Um I've had the chance to talk with Charles about his influences, and and he's often said that he was really influenced by the Victorian golden age of, you know, fairy tale illustrators like mm-hmm. uh, Arthur Rackham. And if uh-huh. anyone has never seen Arthur Rackham's illustrations, they're wonderful, they're elegant, he would do these pen and ink drawings, and then have these very layered, delicate watercolors over and even though we we have someone else coloring, I think Steve Olaf mm-hmm. was was fantastic for this. He um, I read in the notes, I hadn't realized this was one of the first issues that was in part computer 
uh, you know, the, the, the coloring was aided by computer, but they were still uh, using some of the older techniques, which I think I've described mm -hmm. to you involved like looking at it was coded and then a, a poor assistant editor with already failing eyesight would have to look and squint <laughs> and see how many red dots to how many green dots. And did this seem like it was the right, you know, concoction? Oh, my God. The Shelly Roberg, who was then Shelly Bond, uh, who came after mm -hmm. me, was just such a good colorist. And she could glance at something and tell you, oh, that's R234. You know, I, I could not. Oh, my goodness. But... <laughs> Okay, so, but one of the things that Steve Olaf talked about in his notes, I think this was in The High Bender, that he, he talked about mm -hmm. how, by the way, this book literally arrived today. So when I say I've yeah. been reviewing this last minute, <laughs> I'm like, wait, there's a box at my door. Okay. Anyway, Steve Olaf yeah. had talked about the fact that he was taking this very bright uh coloring of, of the beginning of the day and darkening it as the performance goes into the night. And he mm -hmm. also had a slightly different color schemes for when we're looking at the fairy folk, when we're looking at the onstage performance, and when we're looking mm -hmm. at the real world stuff happening uh, backstage. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't think about it until now. But yeah, absolutely. They have they have very different tones. You know, there's like a fairy tone, a human tone, and then kind of that behind the scenes, sort of in shadow, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's And I think that that gives, I mean, all of the colorists on the Sandman have been able to really do use color for storytelling. And I probably haven't talked about it enough, but Mm -hmm. Well, better to start now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got plenty of time, baby. There's tons of issues coming. <laughs> We're going to talk about all of this stuff. Um, so that's so great. I'm glad that you got uh, got that book. And I, I'd heard about the Leslie Klinger book, too. So, um, yeah, this uh, I'm, I'm very excited that we're getting more behind the scenes uh, information from you. Um, so, yeah, um, it's really neat to kind of have the new artists uh, working on it. There's new uh, sort of interpretations. Um, one of the things that I noticed um, in this is that uh, Sandman Morpheus is all his head is almost always down, mm. kind of in this. And I don't know if it is, um, you know, like a, a bodily gesture of deference to the to the fairies you know that he is you know sort of holding his hand out and his ha his head down or if there's some sort of sense that it felt like there was some a little bit of sadness you know i i um it was interesting i think he's a little uncomfortable we'll, we'll talk more about this i think there are some hints about um his relationship with Titania mm -hmm. so we we are getting some hints here that he and Titania may have been intimate at some point oh and mm -hmm. um so we've got oberon who is is often depicted with horns but horns of course can also be symbolic of a, a husband who has been cuckolded as they used to interesting. say oh my goodness so wow. there is that and another thing that might be interesting for us to to look at in this is that this is is this our first? No, it's not our first. Uh, this is our second encounter, I think, with pre-incarceration Sandman. So the first was yeah. in the Hob Gadling. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we saw him in the Hobgadling. Oh, no, we also mm-hmm. saw him with Nada. So is this the third? We saw him with Tails in the Sand. Yes. Yeah. So we've mm-hmm. got, this is this is our third encounter with a Sandman who has not been, I, yeah. I, I want to say humanized. <laughs> right. Um, oh, God, so interesting, especially because he is struggling with his morality in this uh in this issue which is interesting to see because we haven't seen that as much we haven't seen as much of sandman pre you know uh burgess you know um and uh that's yeah that's really interesting okay well we're gonna get to that i've got that in my notes later um tell me a little bit about karen Berger's contribution to this well this i, I think karen actually talked about this a little with us when she was mm-hmm. when she was visiting um, but this is one of the rare issues where Karen asked Neil for a revision. Um, in the mm-hmm. first draft, I, I guess, you know, it was very similar. The change was a small one, ultimately, but a pivotal mm-hmm. one, which is always interesting, I think, for us as writers to see how yeah. much a small change can do. She felt that the story lacked a human center and that it was, you know, mm-hmm. sort of aimed at, you know, the Shakespeare scholars. And I... Right. <laughs> I imagine that, you know, here Neil was doing all of this research into Shakespeare and the Elizabethan time period. And, you know, Mm -hmm. as happens with all of us, you can get into your research and being very aware of this, you know, the weighty hand of history and great literature on your shoulder. And um, and so. You know, he he went back and I think what he did, I'm just looking. Yeah, it was the first six panels on page 13, mm-hmm. which was originally some antics that were on stage. And instead, it was replaced by Hamnet reflecting on how his father's uh, focus on his career impacted on him. And Neil later said that really gave the story its heart. That That's where we get this incredible mm-hmm. quote, you know. He's very distant, Tommy. He doesn't seem like he's really there anymore. Not really. It's like he's somewhere else. Anything that happens, he just makes stories out of it. I'm less real to him than any of the characters in his plays. And then Hamnet adds that his sister jokes that if Hamnet ever died, Shakespeare would just write a play about it. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, And we will see that play. With this, with the you know the change of one letter and, uh, and come in with Hamlet, um, yeah, I, it's so interesting to have uh, to have William Shakespeare be such a huge character in this, and also that you know here we are with a Midsummer Night's Dream. I mean, we're not even playing on the title; we're just using the title. This is a Midsummer Night's Dream, and we are out in the middle of this this space, kind of creating this this one last liminal area between these two worlds that are going to be separated, you know, from here on out. Um, a one last party, one last goodbye, you know, um, which I thought was really interesting um and the thing that i love about bringing shakespeare in is that you know shakespeare is a writer's writer i think that if you are a writer there is a certain affection that you can have for shakespeare uh because he his work is still celebrated and i think it's because he is a rare mix of funny profound and truthful and truthful in the way that it's spoken of you know in this issue that it is not factual but it is true. 
And that is what Shakespeare does. That's what he did, you know. Um, so I think it's it's really fun to um, to once again, every time you take a Shakespeare play and you put it in a different context, um, it's always fun to look at it from another angle. And here we have all these fairies who are like, oh, that's me. You know, like seeing themselves in this play, seeing themselves reflected back, even though sometimes they don't feel that it's necessarily an accurate portrayal. Um, but you're looking at it through this different lens and it makes it a lot of fun to to watch and kind of get a sense of. Um, I think one of my favorite parts was when uh, one of the fairies were complaining that it was men playing the women. And we all know that men don't taste like women. Men taste of rabbit and they get caught in your teeth, um, which was such a fun, a fun way of bringing that sharpness into what were essentially the groundlings, right? You know, all of these fairies being wild, you know, uh, shouting at the actors, you know, just, just talking over everything. And then we have this one big blue, I don't know if it, it was a, a, a supposed to be a, a coded male or female or non-binary or whatever, but that, that blue being, that was just there explaining everything to everybody and just wanted to watch it. I loved that character. Um, but here we have all of this stuff going up and uh, going on with uh, with Midsummer Night's Dream. And then we get to this, like the deal, the heart of this deal that he made with William Shakespeare. We came to an arrangement. I'd give him what he thinks he most desires. And in return, he'd write two plays for me. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, what is it that he most desired? Was it the stories, the talent to write them, the success, the recognition? What is it that Sandman gave him in return for these? And the price, he says, and he's he's struggling, you know, Morpheus is there struggling with the the cost to William Shakespeare that maybe he doesn't understand, um, you know, what the price is. And I think that, like, the price is his son. I mean, isn't that it? I, I don't think that was the price mm -hmm. of the bargain with the Sandman. I think that is another fallout. I, that's my interpretation okay. of him mm -hmm. being um, a, an absent father, an emotionally yeah. absent father and not paying attention to, you know, what his what his son is trying to do to reach him. And I think, you know, yeah. we, there's so many different ways that Neil engages with this whole idea of the cost, the, the human cost of writing well. Right. Yeah. Right. And it is an obsession, you know, yeah. I mean, it does take over. I mean, that's the thing, like it takes over your, um, and I've, you know, I felt that in raising my kids, you know, while I was writing, like you just are in this other world and it's really easy to drift away, you know, but we do have this kind of theme of these children. I mean, of course, you know, one of the classic things about fairy stories back when we allowed the fairies to have their teeth, right, is that they would steal children, that was one of the things that the fairies did. And Titania has got an eye on Hamnet. Um, so she's coming for him. 
you know, she's trying to talk him into coming to the realm with her. Um, and then, of course, we get back to this kind of theme of stolen children. Uh, Morpheus intends to take Leda's child. Uh, Titania is coming for Hamnet, you know. Um, so I find that this I find this really kind of an interesting thing that it is. Uh, it feels to me like the price would be something more directly that that is part of the deal that you know um that morpheus would take from him so when morpheus is sitting there kind of mulling over you know whether this man really understands the price but that even if he did he would still choose he would still make the same choice um it's interesting and the the first thing i thought of was the loss of the child that like you know that's that's the cost yeah i you know we will see hamnet again not in the sandman mm -hmm. but in another book uh it was a mini series called the books of magic and mm -hmm. uh we go back into the realm of fairy we will see hamnet again and i think there neil makes more explicit the rules of fairy which is i believe that if you're given a gift and you don't mm -hmm. give back a gift of equal or greater value, then you end up having to become someone's servant or slave. And mm -hmm. I, it reminds me, as, as all things do, really, of Jeremiah Johnson, where Jeremiah Johnson, mm -hmm. you know, unthinkingly gives a gift to the indigenous people and the guy who's with says, you idiot, if they can't think of a better gift to give you, you know, you're, you're you know, we're screwed. <laughs> and... Uh, <gasps> So I guess, I guess we have imbued the fairies with some of our most ancient human traditions, um, which you know have to do with. Uh, so this season, if you're giving gifts, mm -hmm. just remember better make it a good one. <laughs> it's very very complicated. It's a very complicated human inter interaction. Um, I, I love this stuff with uh, Morpheus wrestling with his own morality and it wasn't until you'd mentioned it that I realized, ah, oh, he's doing this before Burgess, that he's wrestling with whether this is right or wrong, um, worrying about whether he did the right thing. He says he did not understand the price. Mortals never do. They only see the prize. Their hearts desire their dream. But the price of getting what you want is getting what you, what once you wanted. Um, and so I found that really interesting. And again, it's, it's vague enough that I'm like, well, what is the price? Like, what is the cost? Was this, you know, clear mm -hmm. when you made this deal with him or, you know, or is this some kind of trickster magic or whatever? Um, but it is really fun to see him kind of wrestling with, um, with right and wrong. And then we have Titania who doesn't even know what he's talking about. Like, right and wrong is not even on her radar. She is not into that discussion. She's like, I don't even know what this is. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you worried about these people for? Yeah, you, know? you get the feeling in that relationship, you know, mm -hmm. she she was not the one, you know, go, going all woebegone and saying, could we just hang out a little? Um, right. No, that was, that was not the nature of that relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I just you know, got into a, a conversation with someone about Edward de Vere. So there, I've always heard the rumors that maybe Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare. And, oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, have now since sat through some videos explaining why Edward de Vere is really the author of the Shakespeare plays. Mm -hmm. he, you know, actually, there are some 
convincing arguments, but I keep thinking that I want it to be Shakespeare. I don't want it to be some royal at court, no matter how many interesting yeah, similarities. Right. Mm-hmm. That's it's sort of the 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 difference between discovering that the person who wrote the book you love is, you know, some Oxford Don or some Princeton professor, as opposed to this person who was working at a construction crew for 20 years and then thought, you know, there's there's something about Shakespeare being just an ordinary Joe who ends up writing these incredible plays that feels like the truth I want to believe in. And and also he had a, a receding hairline really young, which makes him very relatable. Which gives him that vulnerability that we all look for, right? Uh, yeah, I, I remember watching a documentary some years ago uh, that was that had me convinced for a while that Marlowe was actually Shakespeare because Shakespeare didn't get good until Marlowe died. And then they had Marlowe was off, you know, was was uh, had faked his death and ran off and lived in Italy and sent the plays back. And because he had to had to hide, he made a deal, you know, another deal right with Shakespeare and Shakespeare would publish the plays pretending they were his you know, but they were really uh, Christopher Marlowe's, Um, which is always, it's always fun to kind of sit with these ideas. There's people believe that Frank Francis Bacon is the real uh, author. There's a number of, of different ideas because people really can't believe that, that William Shakespeare actually did what he did, you know? Um, But I, I don't know at, at a certain point, I, uh, it, uh, conspiracy theories rely way too much on an inhuman level of competence and the ability for people to pull this stuff off for a long period of time and keep it quiet and leave no definitive evidence and all of that. I think it's fun to play around with these ideas, but I really think that it's that Shakespeare was Shakespeare and he just was what he was. He was just a brilliant playwright. And um, and sometimes seeing things from the outside in can give you a clarity of vision that if he was a member of court, he might not have had. Um, so I, I, I think I think it's it's Shakespeare, but it is kind of fun to play around with with these ideas about whether it was really him. Uh, but the fact that he did kind of come into like really come into his talent, grow into it at about this time. You know, this was about when the when his stuff got good, which happens to everybody who continues to write, you know, that there is, you know, you work and you work and you work and you work and then suddenly you're better. You know, uh, but you can't get there without going through the work. You can't get to good without going through bad work. The only way to good work is through bad work. I've always said that and I stand by it. Uh, not that William Shakespeare is ever really bad, but he just really hit his talent right about this time period. And so the idea that Morpheus was behind that, you know, that Morpheus gave him whatever it was that he needed to like actually have that level of talent is a fun idea and it's really fun to play with. Um, I love that he asked for two plays, right? That's all that his, his price is two plays. I want two plays about one about fairies, one about dreams. And he's like, at the end of his career, he'll do the one about dreams. That'll be the Tempest, right? Yeah. Um, and then he's doing the one about uh, about the fairies with Midsummer Night's Dream now. Um, it's really fun. I love that he made this deal as a gift to the Fae, 
Like before he sends them back into his world, never to come through Wendell's mound again, you know, um, it was such a it's such a lovely little detail. Um, and and I really, really enjoyed that. Um, and we have so much fun with all of these different characters kind of seeing themselves in the play and some of them objecting to it and some of them enjoying it um that it's just it's a story and it's fun and it's not factual but it's true there's so much going on in all of these um in all of these spaces um and i love puck i am that merry wanderer of the night i am that giggling dangerous totally bloody psychotic menace to life and limb more like it i love that it's so fun um and how Having Puck, too, uh, of course, like our resident trickster, you know, in the middle of it, steals the um, the mask and plays himself there at the end. What fools these mortals be, you know, um, really, really fun. There's a lot of movement, kineticism. There's, you know, a lot happening within this story where it's almost it feels almost kind of like a carousel. And it comes around and we see part of the story and then we go and we see the part of another part. And we go and see like we see the human side. We see the fairy side. We see, you know, a Sandman, the endless, you know, um, there with this magical um, group of people. Um, and it's just it's really, really fun um, to kind of see all of that play happening. And then, of course, that very human moment with Hamnet. Yeah, I, you know, for me, I... I have my own connection to that as uh, the daughter of, of a writer. And I, as a little mm -hmm. kid, I just sat around trying to be really quiet and watching my father writing, which was some of the main time wow. I remember speaking, uh, spending with him. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that there is something about Neil's awareness of that mm -hmm. duality of that, you know, you need to have a certain scavenger selfishness to be a writer and yet at the same time mm -hmm. there is this self-awareness of the the cost you know to to your intimates especially to children and yeah. you know Neil had his kids his his uh, oldest kids quite young but I I think he I just always had this sense that there was this real awareness of their their right to call on him as well that what you see yeah. in in here is you know a person who does have a conscience about you know not just spending time in the imaginary worlds he he creates yeah and to find that balance too and you know and when you you always make a choice there's always something that you give up you know, and if you give up your time in those imaginary worlds where you can build these stories that I mean, you know, stories are meaning generating machines. They're hugely powerful. And to play in that space is is just an incredible experience. But yeah, it takes you out of the world that you're here to experience. It takes you away from the people that you're here to experience it with. And and that is, you know, it is a trade-off. And how much of that do you trade away? And you have to be very conscious and very aware of that. It's very easy to just 
wander off and not be there without realizing it. Well, okay, so this leads me, you know, toward Lucien's library. I don't know if we're ready or yeah. I, because I've got... Oh, sure. Oh, my God, I have so many things this week. I am um, very excited about Lucien's library. Yes, let's get into okay, it. Okay, so the first thing I will mention is, so many years ago, I went off to Neil's house when his uh, daughter Holly was still quite young. And mm -hmm. we were working on putting together The Dreaming, which was the spinoff from The Sandman. And Holly came down and she was saying, Daddy, you know, will you come and tuck me in mm -hmm. or will you do something? And Neil said, I'm really sorry, but, you know, Elise and I have some more work to do. And Holly got really mad and she said something like, oh, all you ever do is steal other people's old stories and retell them. And then she slammed the door and ran off. And, and Neil paused and he looked at me and he said, you know, she's absolutely right. <laughs> it was, um, it was a, a really delicious moment. Um, so that, that was one of the Lucien's library things that I really wanted to include. Um, and then mm -hmm. there's a couple of things from the, the High Bender book and the Leslie Klinger, the annotated. So mm -hmm. this was Neil commenting on this script. It will either work really well or it'll be a major disaster. He said, I mean, people will talk about this in the list of great, interesting failures forever. They'll say things like, cool, you call the Hulk versus the thing in 3D pop-up graphic novel with a free songbook an interesting failure? You should have been there when Gaiman and Vess made idiots of themselves on the Sandman. Or like I said, it might work. Uh, so that was, that was Neil's uh, script notes on this issue. And, well, you know, what's funny yeah. about that is it will either work really well or it'll be a major disaster. Like, honestly, everything that's a risk, if you're going to be creative, you're going to take a risk. And there is a risk that it's not going to work. And being willing to take that risk that it's not going to work is what will make the very interesting and powerful work possible. It's, it's very true. And I, I think to be an interesting failure is not yeah. such a, a terrible thing to That's to be. not a bad thing. Um, mm -hmm. All right. Then uh, there was also in Highbender's book. So before Neil wrote Calliope, it turned out, he tried to write a tale called Sex and Violets about a very old Robin <laughs> Goodfellow running <laughs> a brothel with only one whore, a succubus uh. who granted <laughs> ideas, and Neil tried it twice, it didn't work, and then he threw it out to write Calliope, but that, I guess, is what becomes of Robin Goodfellow. He becomes, you know, a, a grizzled old uh, puck pimp. Oh, that makes sense. That <laughs> makes sense. God, I love a trickster. Tricksters are so much fun. Um, and, you know, it's really fun because they're not always evil. You know, like they're, they sometimes do things that are good for people and sometimes they don't and you can never predict where they're going to be or what they're going to do. But whatever they're going to do, it is going to be honestly, probably for their amusement. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's, you know, you, you probably Bugs Bunny, if you, if you were intimately involved with him would be uh, as, yeah. as malevolent as, as Puck. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what the fun of the trickster is, but they don't change. They don't arc. You cannot get a regular character out of a trickster. The trickster's job is just always to be there creating chaos. Oh. And it's so much fun. Okay, I, I have to take this back. I'm suddenly remembering Bugs Bunny actually never initiated the chaos. That is where he and Puck differ. I think ah. after the earliest cartoons, Bugs Bunny was always, he always, like a skunk, he acted defensively. Yeah. This is tricksterishness <laughs> was... Fair enough. Fair enough. Defensive. Tricksters are, yeah, fix, tricksters are active protagonists, definitely. Okay, um, but but wait, there's more. This is Lucien's yes. library a go go. Yes. So Titania mentions that she has heard this tale before from a boy with a liar, and that is a clue worth remembering. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, let's see. In the beginning, Richard Burbage calls Morpheus Syrah. When he's like, sir, I never perform a, you know, play badly. Mm -hmm. And it's a phrase I did not know that that was an insult until Neil informed me that I had misused it in my own writing of <laughs> Destiny, a Chronicle of Deaths Foretold. He was like, Elisa, don't you know that Sarah is, you know, a... a an insult and i want to tell I you i had no idea okay but here's the thing before google listen to me children yeah. listen children <laughs> there was a time before the google and you, you 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 had to go and find you'd have to i was working as an assistant editor i had a busy life i would have had to mm -hmm. go to a bookstore or the library get books on elizabethan england i saw sarah in some comics and i thought oh i think i get it and I, I, I figured I would let other people do the research for me, which is kind of what you all are doing, looking it up on Wikipedia. So don't judge me. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about um, in a little more detail, we sort of mentioned this at the top, is The Long Man of Wilmington. Um, they perform the play by The Long Man of Wilmington, which is a figure that is that actually exists, that is drawn into the side of Windover Hill in East Sussex, um, formed now with white painted blocks, but originally was just cut into the side of the hill and was only visible as like a slightly different shade of green in the summers or a shallow depression under a light snow in the winter. Um, the blocks were put in during during a restoration in the 1800s. But uh, originally they had thought that this was had been like a, you know, medieval kind of uh, thing. Oh, that older had been than done. that. I think some yeah. people thought medieval. Some people thought like Roman Britain or, or Anglo-Saxon. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I guess Anglo-Saxon yeah. is early medieval. Yeah. Sorry. But recent discoveries date this figure to the 16th or 17th century with some speculation of, of being like that it's a Tudor or Stuart era political satire. So basically the equivalent of a fuck Trump billboard now, right? Um, it, maybe it has some kind of meaning. Um, so we have this moment here and I, I cannot express to you like how deeply I love this moment. It's a portal. Wendell is the long man and he opens up the space for the fairies to come through and I cannot, it's one of those things that's, it's in the side of a hill and everybody's like, I don't know. And people have theories about what it is, but this is such a beautifully imaginative way to explain what this is. And, you know, because it's a man and he's standing in the in the hill and he's got his hand on these two. They look like poles, but they're actually the sides of 
of the door and he pulls the portal open and all the fairies come out. It's so close. And I love this too. It's we need only the unclosing of the portal, not the opening, the unclosing. Wendell was put there to close it up. You know? Yes. And oh my God, I love that so much. I I have to say it's it's incredible. And I so my um my kid's dad is originally from East Sussex and I got to see mm-hmm. that in real life. It is <gasps> oh my goodness. It is really one of those incredible things. And it was drawn mm-hmm. with perspective. So it looks right when yeah. you're seeing it. If you actually see mm-hmm. it flat on, it's it's from got, below. Yeah, right? it's yeah. it's it's mm-hmm. got some weird uh, perspective on it. So I, I did get a chance to say to Neil, you know, Neil, I don't think we've talked since they have come up with this new dating mm-hmm. of the, uh, of the Wilmington, right. uh, you know, long man. What, what are your thoughts about it? And he, he said, well, my story about it would be that after Wendell left, the doorway and the figure disappeared and humans drew their replacement, which would have been Right about the time that this story right took about place, that time. so I, I love it. I I love it too, and I, I will not even call that a retcon. I will just say that is the way it has always been. Yeah. Now I <laughs> and I now I really want to name something Wendell. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. I'm I'm writing something new now. I think I'll put a Wendell in there. I kind of love that idea. Maybe we all I need. Love that idea. We need Everybody a needs a Wendell. A Wendell. <laughs> For the unclosing of the portal. Um, all right. So what's your favorite page? Uh, what is my favorite page? Oh, I, you know, there's the scene where Will first sees the fair folk coming down the hill. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's also this really cool moment. I think people have been using this more. There is a a speech balloon that's going to Will and it's got three ellipses, the dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I'm not sure if that was actually Todd Klein's contribution or that was in the script but I love Mm -hmm. that just that wonderful moment of double take that is both yes funny and completely wonderful and awe inspiring and and I think that my imagination with Charles Vess's art really turns it into a complete Busby Berkeley you know cast of (laughs) thousands moment Oh, God, I love it. I love what they do with little things like that, like the little ellipses. And then there's this one thing where uh, where in the beginning they're being fed the line. And so the speech bubble is in dashes. That's right? a whisper. That, it, that gives you the whisper. I love the the ways in which um, they're able to express these things that you wouldn't think you'd be able to express through that kind of visual medium. And yet they do it. And it's so incredibly creative. I love that. The semiotics of comics. <laughs> I know. It's so cool. Um, for me, I have to say absolute favorite. And honestly, this is right up there with Chantal being in love with a sentence, which was one of my favorites as well. Um, this is Puck's page where he gives the final speech and we see him turning to a trickster's darkness. We see him like there's blues and there's whites and there's all this. And then as we move through the page, it gets to the point where he's like the Cheshire cat. The only thing we see are the eyes and the teeth. And then there's a black panel and it is so beautiful, a descent um, and so lovely in the way that it's visually represented. I, I love that page so much. I can't, it may even be my favorite page, my favorite like panel. It's a whole page. Okay. My favorite like art so far. I love it. And you know, it really reminds me of what 
one of my favorite panels was from last issue because mm -hmm. there was a similar shot of the cat when it's remembering mm -hmm. eating the human where we just get eyes and teeth. And, yeah. and so we, you know, that's two different artists, but what we're mm -hmm. seeing is this is Neil also, I, I wish I had the original scripts, but I'm sure that that is being evoked by the, the script, uh, in the script, yeah. in the script. Mm -hmm. so I, I think, you know, he, he was good, but I can see him just getting better and better at the language of mm -hmm. comics and at, you know, writing for each each artist. All right, Elisa. So here we've done our favorite pages. What's your favorite part? So my favorite part has to be where uh, I think it's Will Kemp. The I forgot mm -hmm. the first name. The the actor is delivering Bottom's famous "Eye of Man hath not heard" speech, and you get the mm -hmm. silhouetted audience of these evilly grinning fairies. I I mm -hmm. actually got to see a Shakespearean. So I think it was a royal. I can't remember who it was. Royal Shakespeare Company. Mm -hmm. It was it was about four dudes or five yeah. dudes in a graveyard in Brighton. Um, and, and everyone's sitting, you know, arranged. We weren't resting on gravestones, but we were all on the ground mm -hmm. looking up at this very small stage. And it, it <sighs> felt there was something about the experience of that and that scene that, that I just feel like you can see the fairies hanging out picnic style on the grass, all of their glee and malevolence, you know, just contained for the moment mm -hmm. by the magic of this performance. Oh, my God. I love that so much. And that brings me to my favorite part, which was that big blue fairy that's just explaining stuff to everybody else. You know, um, it uh, there was something that was so delightful about that one fairy that just wanted to watch the show that was completely entranced by the storytelling that was into the experience of just watching the play. And you know that feeling, you know. I, I love it because that is clearly the fairy of exposition. You know, it's the yeah. fairy who keeps <laughs> the exposition Yes, fairy. because, you know, clearly <laughs> Neil couldn't assume that everyone knew oh the plot. Oh my God, it is the exposition it's, fairy. You, so I, I, I kind of love, I think that all of us need to find the exposition fairy for those times when we absolutely need yes. some. Well, we absolutely have to. And that was the thing. I was wondering what the uh, what the, the blue fairy's name was, because it wasn't Pease Bottom and it wasn't Puck. The fairy was talking to them, you know, and I was like, so who is this fairy? What is their name? And it, what's funny is that, you know, after all those years of doing Still Pretty, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast, uh, we would constantly talk about Giles as the exposition fairy. So I think for me... I'm going to have to name it Giles. I, I, Giles is my favorite part. I think so. So I'll have to look up. I'm sure it has a name like, you know, Hisseltoe or something. I was looking for it and I could not find it. If, if this fairy is named, I want to know what that fairy is. And then I want a stuffed animal that looks like that fairy. I love that it's the exposition fairy. I hadn't put that together, but that is brilliant. I love it. <laughs> Okay, so if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish, and use the hashtag 
Endless Podcast, or send your comments or questions to endless at chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stephania. And this week's special message for our power producers, it is a fool's prerogative to utter truths that no one else will speak. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com chipperish. Other ways to show your support. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about the show. Or bestir yourselves there, lumpkins. <laughs> this episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, during your stay on this earth, you have afforded me much diversion and entertainment. I would repay you for the amusement and more. We'll be back next time with Facade, issue 20 of the Sandman series. Until then, this is magnificent, and it is true. It never happened, yet it is still true. What magic art is this? <laughs> <laughs>